Chapter 43 Saturday, January 18th, 1777 That even a failure cannot be more fatal than to remain in our present situation. In short, some enterprise must be undertaken in our present cir circumstances, or we must give up the cause. Our affairs are hastening fast to ruin if we do not retrieve them by some happy event. Delay with us is now equal to a total defeat. Colonel Joseph Reed in a letter to jo General George Washington. Please, ma'am, I started. Silence! She cracked the crop across my shoulder. The back door opened and Hannah entered. Oh, excuse me, she said, turning to leave again. Stay, madam ordered. Hannah let the door close and murmured, Yes, madam. Her eyes stealing once to me, then quickly away. I fought the urge to run for the knife drawer. Madam paced in front of me. I have never in my entire life been so humiliated. She paused and put on a mimic face. I saw your little black girl talking to a rebel officer on Warren Street. Do you allow your slave to consort with the enemy? I could not swallow nor breathe. She brought the crop down with a crack on the edge of the table. Jean Drinkwater said this to me. Jean Drinkwater, the biggest gossip in New York. Madam paced again, her hair flying loose, her manner quite unsteady. I said, no, Jane, you must be mistaken. Not our Sal. Colonel Hawkins himself uses her for errands. She stopped suddenly. And Jane says, no, Anne, your girl was speaking to a rebel prisoner on Warren Street. It's hard to miss that mark on her face. From my carriage, I saw her take a note from his hand. I opened my mouth to protest, but she slashed at me again. This time the blow opened a cut on my forehead. Give me that note, Madam demanded. I have no note, ma'am, I said quiet. She held out her hand. Liar! Give me that paper or I'll turn you over to the British commander so fast your fool head will spin. Her voice shook with rage. I reached into my pocket and pulled out the folded note. Madam looked over to Hannah. See? You just need to be firm with them. Hannah said nothing. A drop of blood rolled down the side of my face. I clutched the note in my fist. Give it. Madam narrowed her eyes. Did you hear me, girl? Everybody carried a little evil in them, Mama once told me. Madam Lockton had more than her share. The poison had eaten holes through her soul and made room for vermin to nest inside her. Girl! Madam stamped her foot on the floor. The evil inside of me woke and crackled like lightning. I could wrap my hands around her throat. I could brain her with a poker, thrust her face into the flames. I could beat her senseless with my fists. I shook from the effort of holding myself still, clutching the crumpled paper. Mama said we had to fight the evil inside us by overcoming it with goodness. She said it was a hard thing to do, but it made us worthy. I breathed deep to steady myself. 
I threw the captain's note into the fire. Hannah gasped. Madam shrieked and pushed me out of the way, but the paper was already alight. She dropped the crock and smacked me again in the face with her hand, as she had the day I first landed in New York. You foul, bloody wench! She reached behind her, picked up a bowl, and hurled it at me. I ducked, and it crashed against the hearth. I will sell you, she screamed. I will auction you at dawn on Monday. I'll sell your demon sister, too, to the most cruel, heartless master I can find. The devil himself, if he wants. She paused to catch her breath. Ruth? Hannah stepped forward. Um, I do believe there was a knock at the door, madam, she said. But she already sold Ruth. Madam glared at her. Then answer it, you bloody fool. Didn't she? As Hannah left, Madam brushed back her hair, gathering her dignity. I stood still by the fire where the note had burned to fine ash. I could not think what might happen next. Madam tugged at her short gown. What's that stupid look on your face? She said with a harsh laugh. <laughs> you didn't think, you didn't know I still owned her, did you? Ruth? The name escaped my mouth. Brat, Madam spat. Couldn't find a buyer. Had to ship her down to Charleston. I shall tell the estate manager to get rid of her. Toss her in the swamp. Her death will be on your head, you insolent fool. Hannah came back in from the hall. The hairdresser, madam. What? Madam wheeled about. What did you say? The hairdresser is come to prepare you for the ball? The Queen's ball, ma'am. You must leave in a few hours? Madam cleared her throat and stood straighter. Of course. You must first help me into my gown. Hannah nodded. Yes, ma'am. Lock the girl in the potato bin. Then come upstairs. The bin was more than half filled with potatoes and smelled of damp earth and worms. There was not enough room to sit up, but lying down was like lying in a bed of rocks. I wanted to scream and pinched myself hard to fight the urge. I did not want to give Madame any satisfaction. Overhead came the noises of footsteps as the hairdresser performed his job and left, and the colonel returned from headquarters to change into his dress uniform, and Madame sent Hannah running for this fold roll or th and that. There was the sounds of horse hooves and the roll of carriage wheels, and the front door opened and then closed, and the house fell quiet save for Hannah's steps in the kitchen. A light appeared through the boards of the bin. It's me, Hannah said. She's gone. The light was set on the ground. Then there was a fumbling of a key in the padlock. The bin door opened and Hannah peered in. I brought you some things. Here. She handed me a chamber pot, a blanket, and a mug of water. Taint right to lock you away with nothing. You ain't an animal. Let me go, please, I pleaded. But before I could say anything further or reach for her, she had slammed down the door and shot home the lock again. I'll be back by dawn and check on you then, she said. Try to sleep. Please, Hannah, I cried. Please, I beg of you, please. 
Her footsteps flew up the stairs and the door slammed. I thought I heard a sob, but perhaps I didn't. The bees overtook me then. As evening moved into night, they ate through me and hived up inside my brain pan with a loud buzz, their wings beating me into submission. Someone whimpered and cried, and it must have been me, but it mattered not, for I was already dead. It was only a few hours, excuse me, it was only a few days, hours perhaps, until my heart would stop beating, in truth, and the bees would fly off to hunt someone else. And then came the sound of a distant roar, like a lion just sprung from a trap. The bees paused, and I froze, waiting. No one was home except for Lady Seymour, and she was not capable of making noise. The roar came again. I cocked my head and listened. It did not come from the street, nor the house above. It was not cannon fire. Twas inside me. A thought, thunderous loud. Ruth was alive. Alive in Charleston, in South Carolina, not on a ship, not on an island. Alive in a town I can walk to. My toes wiggled in my sturdy black shoes and my legs itched. I lay flat as I could on the bumpy mound of potatoes and kicked once at the boards of the bin. My heavy shoes made a terrible loud noise on the wood. I stopped, counted to 100. There came no sound from overhead, no commotion out on the street. I kicked again, the same spot. The potatoes under me shifted and the mug of water overturned. I kicked a third time. The boards did not move at all. I cursed the carpenter who had built this tomb. There has to be a way out. I kicked, stomped, slammed. I raged and screamed and fought. Nothing happened. I stopped, wiped the sweat from my face, and closed my eyes. Think. The bin stood a little taller than Ruth and was long in both directions as it was tall. I reached up to touch the boards above my head. They were rough-hewn, put together with cold nails, my fingers traced the length of each board, feeling along the splinters and the knots in the wood. The top was as solid as a brick wall, each nail face fastened tight. I fought back the panic that rose in my throat and tested the strength of each board that ran from the top down the sides. All strong, all sound. Think, remember. When Ruth and I slept down here, the far corner of the cellar went muddy in a heavy rain. Maybe the damp had eaten at the boards. I moved over to that corner of the bin and scooped the potatoes out of the way, heaping them behind me. I sat back and put my feet on each board in turn and pushed. The third board I tried gave way a little. So did the next two. I moved the potato heap so I could best lean against it and pushed with my legs. I kicked. There was a quiet crack. I kicked again and leaned forward to feel the boards. The one had a piece chipped off where the wood was rotted through. The other had a long split in it. I leaned back and took a deep breath 
then kicked and kicked and kicked with all my strength until the wood broke and flew into the dark. I took the stairs two at a time and paused before I entered the kitchen. The house was still silent. I hurried down the hall, past the grandfather clock, and up the stairs to the drawing room. I needed a map, and I had a mind to steal a pass, too, if I could. I threw some wood on the fire, lit a candle from the flames, and carried it to the long dining table covered with maps and countless papers. I lit the rest of the candles on the table as if preparing for a feast, then searched through the papers, throwing those that were useless to me to the floor. Finally, I found a small map that showed the colonies from Massachusetts down to Georgia. The distance from Rhode Island to New York was the same as the tip of my little finger in the first knuckle, to the first knuckle under it. From New York to Charleston stretched all the way down my fingers to the palm. The crackling firewood startled me. I glanced up. There was a movement over the hearth, and for an instant my heart caught in my throat. A ghost? The firelight brightened. No, not a ghost. I'd caught sight of myself in the large mirror that hung over the mantel. I could scarce recognize me. My hands fumbled for a candle. I moved to the mirror, guarding the flame and lit the oil lamps that were set into the wall. The mirror caught the light and reflected it back at me. I leaned in. In truth, it seemed I was looking at a stranger who lived beyond the glass. My face was thinner than I remembered and longer from brow to chin. My nose and mouth recollected Mama's, but the set of the eyes, those came from Papa. As I stared, their two faces came forth and drifted back until I could see only me. I turned my head to the side a bit and studied the brand on my face. For the first time, studied it hard. The capital I that proclaimed my insolent manners and crimes. I leaned closer to the mirror. The letter was a pink ribbon embroidered on my skin. I touched it, smooth and warm, flesh made into silk. The scars on Papa's cheek had been three lines across his cheek, carved with a sharp blade. He was proud of his marks. In the country of his ancestors, they made him into a man. I traced the eye with my fingertip. This is my country mark. I did not ask for it, but I would carry it as Papa carried his. It made me his daughter. It made me strong. I took a step back, seeing near my whole life in the whole self in the mirror. I pushed back my shoulders and raised my chin, my back straight as an arrow. This mark stands for Isabel. The clock struck 11 and made me jump. I had much to do in little time. The fastest way off the island was a boat, much as the thought made me tremble. I searched through the sea of papers on the table until I found a chart of the tides. I ran my finger down the columns. Huzzah! The tide would not turn against me for a few hours more. I lacked only a pass. Colonel Hawkins had been in the habit of keeping them locked in the chest in the library, but he had become sloppy and overworked since the rebel victories. I opened the drawers of the secretary table and looked through the large boxes of official papers. There. I grabbed the paper and dashed to a small side table for a quill and bottle of ink. 
I crowded the candles in close together to give me enough light, took a deep breath to steady my hand and dip the quill. I took a second breath and bent over to fill in the empty bits of the pass. New York, 1777. I wrote an 18th January in the blank space. It had been some time since I wrote out letters. The J wobbled and the R appeared to be an N. I set down the quill and wiped my damp hands on my skirt and picked it up again. This is to certify to whomever it may concern that the bearer hereof, blank, that was where I had to write my name. I scratched out Isabel and stopped. I was not a Lockton, nor a Finch. Isabel, Rhode Island? That would not do. Isabel Kuf after Papa, or Isabel Dinah after Mama? I closed my eyes and thought of home, the smell of fresh cut hay and the taste of raspberries, robins chasing bugs in the bean patch, setting worms to work at the base of the corn plants, showing Ruth what was weed and what was flour. I opened my eyes, dipped the quill, and wrote out my true name. Isabel Gardner, being a free Negro, has the commandant's permission to pass from this garrison to whatever place she may think proper. It was signed with lots of fancy titles that belonged to the colonel and the commandant and the king himself. I wish that there would have been space for Her Majesty, Queen Charlotte of Great Britain, to sign it too. She and me shared a birthday now, for I was reborn as Isabel Gardner, and that paper proved it.